The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. The U.S. is approaching a record-breaking year for retirement. In 2024, we're expected to see more than 11,000 Americans turn 65 years old on a daily basis. The largest surge of retirement-age Americans in history. The United States reporting a third Houthi attack on these commercial ships in as many days. The United States fighting back with retaliatory strikes. Are we officially in that wider regional conflict we've been trying to avoid for three months now? Well, we might be. And I think that within a few days, weeks, months, we could be very much in a a wider conflict. And here's why. My concern is that Iran's proxies, and now Iran, they're continuing to escalate attacks against American ships, commercial ships, naval ships. At some point, a missile is going to get through. It's going to sink an American ship, and then we are in a bigger regional war. India has taken over as the world's most populous country after China's population dropped for the second straight year. Official figures show last year the number of inhabitants in China stood at 1.409 billion people. That's a decrease of 2.08 million. The fall is more than double that of the previous year. This is a continuation of a huge surge in consumer confidence that started in December. Consumers are telling us is that they truly believe that inflation has turned a corner. For the previous few months before that, they really were reserving judgment, but they're feeling more confident about labor markets as well and have considerably stronger income expectations than they did just a few months ago. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. It was a record-breaking week on Wall Street with the Dow and the S&P 500 hitting new record highs. Powering this week's gains were AI and chip stocks, so we are back to the Magnificent 7 trade again with most other sectors of the market lagging behind. Other sectors doing well on Friday were tech, financials, real estate, and consumer discretionary stocks. Igniting the rally were reports from Taiwan Semiconductor once again upping this year's guidance. While tech stocks rose, bond yields also rose, sending bond prices lower with the loss of 6% in long-term treasury since January. The treasury has the task of raising new money to pay for this year's estimated $3 trillion deficit, as well as refinancing maturing debt, which is putting pressure on bond prices. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplava, and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Up on deck is Ari Wald from Oppenheimer with a very bullish forecast for the S&P 500 this year. He's probably at the top of the list. Ari likes techs, financials, industrials, and gold with a prediction of gold hitting 2,500 this year. Following Ari will be Selma Hepp. She's chief economist at CoreLogic who still sees a strong real estate market due to lack of supply. And finally, Chris Paplava and Chris Sheridan will conclude with another edition of Smart Macro. But first, let's find out the stories moving this week's markets with Ryan Paplava. This week, two significant developments in the corporate world breathed new life into market optimism following earlier losses this month. Firstly, Bank of America upgraded Apple on Thursday, shifting its stance from neutral to buy. Secondly, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, TSM, reported favorable earnings, providing a boost to the semiconductor sector. 
The third item this week emerged in the form of economic news and statements from central bankers that shows investors are still wrestling with how to react to the likelihood of rate cuts later in the year rather than in the immediate future. Most of the day-to-day -day trading this week was in relation to the economic data and sound bites from central bankers and the influence it had on rate cut predictions and rates themselves. This has been an ongoing catalyst this month and I don't anticipate it going away over the next few months. The 10-year treasury jumped up to 4.07% Tuesday in reaction to comments from Fed Governor Waller, a voter this year. Waller said the Fed could begin cutting rates this year, but reiterated the Fed's estimates are for only three rate cuts and not six, as seen in the CME FedWatch tool. That tracks investor speculation in the Fed Fund's futures. On the following day, optimism for cuts by March were further relegated by European Central Bank President Lagarde, who said rate cuts aren't likely to come until this summer, echoing comments from other central bankers. The 10-year Treasury finished up at 4.146% as rates continue to climb in January, tempering some of the bullishness seen over the fourth quarter as rates fell. Part of the influence this week was the comments I mentioned from central bank officials, but the other portion came from rather strong economic data. It feels like investors are wrestling again with good economic news is bad news for rate cuts. Some of the key economic reports this week were the retail sales, unemployment claims, housing data, consumer sentiment, and the preliminary January manufacturing data. The retail sales figure came in better than expected for December, up 0.6%, showing consumer spending remains healthy, a key component of the economy. December's industrial production was up 0.1%, showing output remains steady. The weekly unemployment claims showed a big drop in previous weeks, down to 187,000 from 203,000 previously, showing no signs of stress. The NAHB housing index rose to 44 from 37 in January. December existing home sales were 3.78 million, down slightly from November, showing high mortgage rates are hurting sales, though prices continue to climb. December housing starts ticked down as well to 1.46 million, falling 8.6% post a big rise in November. Definitely a pain in housing prices, not having a good source of supply. Finally, the January University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Report showed optimism with the index, climbing to 78.8 from 69.7 as consumers recognize the drop in year-ahead inflation expectations. Geopolitical concerns continue to remain elevated on stories in the Middle East, but so far that hasn't had an outsized movement in crude oil. A Greek vessel was hit by a missile fired by healthy rebels early in the week. Iran conducted missile strikes of its own on Iraq, Syria, and Pakistan in retaliation for bombings earlier in the month in central Iran on January 3rd. Brent crude finished up slightly for the week, at $79.10, up $0.81, cents, while West Texas crude finished up $0.78 cents to $73.25. One of the key moments that led to a turnaround for stocks this week and for the year-to-date performance of the S&P 500 was an upgrade to Apple from Bank of America and to Evercore's ISI's tactical outperform list and favorable earnings from Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. Bank of America's Whamsey Mohan said the upgrade comes given the stronger multi-year iPhone upgrade cycle driven by the need for the latest hardware to enable generative AI features to be introduced in 2024 and 2025. 
comes as a large part of the installed base is still on iPhone 11. Higher growth as Apple better monetizes its installed base, capital returns in the form of buybacks and dividends, gross margins stable to higher over time, risk around legal issues manageable, and recent underperformance suggests risks baked into expectations. Taiwan Semiconductor was up 9.8% post-earnings on Thursday, and that momentum carried into other semiconductors and on into the Friday close. Taiwan Semi is the largest contract chip manufacturer in the world. They beat earnings expectations and forecasted fiscal year 2024 growth in the low to mid 20% range, indicating that the inventory glut affecting the industry that was well discussed last year is over. Taiwan Semiconductor's customers, NVIDIA, Advanced Micro Devices, and Qualcomm saw jumps in their stocks on the news. The reason for Taiwan Semiconductor's optimism is their positive views for their three nanometer chips in smartphones and high-performance PCs. They think their gross margins will take a hit, but the company thinks long-term forecasts for its gross margin of 53% or better. The tech sector helped drive gains this week with the S&P 500 hitting new all-time highs to close at 48.39. Continue the discussion in earnings. 10% of the companies have reported thus far this earnings season in the S&P 500. As of Friday, according to FactSet, 62% have reported earnings per share above estimates, which is below their five and 10-year averages. They said this is primarily due to the financial sector, but earlier in the week, FactSet estimates as the earnings season progresses that the report will likely be year-over-year growth in earnings of more than 4% as companies generally beat expectations through the earnings season. For now, however, the estimates plus results that have come in show a decline. That's it for this week's wrap-up, showing investors are wrestling with positive economic news and the desire for rate cuts, and how Apple and Taiwan Semiconductor have reinvigorated tech investing after a weak start to the year. If you want to work with an advisor that's active and tied to market news that moves the market, give me a call. Ryan Poplava at 888-486-3939. Up next, Oppenheimer's Ari Wald. People actually underestimate the fact that we're going to have to rejig the energy system. I'll give you an example. We're used to the fact we have coal, gas, or nuclear plants very conveniently located near consumers. And, you know, we just ship the fossil fuels or liquids in bulk via pipelines to these places. Whereas if you switch suddenly to renewables, they're geographically specific. And they're often long distances from population industrial centers. And so essentially, you're going to have to completely reinvent it, the whole system with longer transmission lines, you're going to have to reconfigure the grid. And that's going to be hugely complicated. You know, you need storage, which we've talked about in the context of intermittency. The other thing which people underestimate, people have been encouraged to put solar panels on their houses and then supply energy to the grid. And this lowers your electricity bill and helps the energy system. But the problem is we actually have a one-way energy grid, which goes from the generator to the consumer, we're now going to have a two-way or one-to-many or many-to-many energy system. This is not a trivial problem. It means reinventing your entire transmission system. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. 
From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, after last year's run-up in the Santa Claus rally, the market's been sort of going sideways, up one week, down the next. Where's it going by the end of the year? Will the Fed cut interest rates? And what does this mean for investors? Joining us on the program from Oppenheimer is Ari Wald and Ari, you've got a number that's got to be one of the top on Wall Street, a figure of 5,400 for the S&P, which is quite a year. What's behind that number? Our estimation for 5,400 on the S&P 500 is based on the typical 13% gain in year two of a bull market. Our projections always based on where we believe the index is in that bull cycle. We think that the strength in the fourth quarter of 2023 is marking the next leg of this up cycle that began in October of, of 2022. We have several historical studies that also point to 5,400 as a probable objective. A lot of these studies are based on performances following a flat two-year period or returns following a breakout to new all-time highs. Perhaps while 5,400 is, is one of the, the higher projections currently on the street, We'd even go as far as saying that the S&P is currently conservatively undervalued below this level as well. Now, this is based on typical, the median gain in a below average bull cycle has been 62%. That's if you were to take the 11 shortest and most muted bull cycles, median gain 62%. S&P 5,400 would only equate to a 51% uh, percent rise over that period. So again, this is all within the realm of typical performance in a bull market. We've shown that 70% of the 23 bull market cycles lasted to their two-year anniversary as well. So when you add it all up, historical probabilities favor additional upside into at least the fourth quarter based on our work. So when you're talking about the S&P at 5,400, how much of that aria is going to be driven by the Magnificent Seven? Because we've got a sort of AI rally that's been going on this week, and we know how much the Magnificent Seven drove the S&P last year. In fact, your comment that it could be undervalued, if you take a look at the other 493 stocks, they didn't do that well last year. That's right, and, and that fits into our case that the market is more likely to surprise higher over the coming years, that we're more likely to see that divide between the Magnificent Seven and the other 493 driven by catch up rather than catch down. We've done a lot of work on this and we've shown that the, you know, the returns of benchmarks like the NASDAQ 100, that the steadiness is been underappreciated in our view that the rate of long-term rate of changes really in apples and oranges comparison to what we've seen say in the late 1990s where a lot of comparisons are currently made 
and that instead the divide between the seven and the other four ninety three has really been driven by how poorly the rest of the market has done, coming off long term rate of change levels from a couple of years ago that rivaled major market lows in two thousand eight, two thousand two, nineteen seventy four, nineteen forty two as well, and the potential catalyst for what we still see is a middle inning secular bull is if the rest of the market can finally keep pace with what we see as a you know steadily paced secular ascent in the technology sector now for us the large gap growth should continue to be an investor's core position that from a risk reward basis we we still think we are in a secular bull market to be led higher by that theme uh, but we think you can continue to uh, trade around that position uh, along with these swings in beta. And we do seem to be at a point where there is some catch up in the rest of the market. And, and I think that could be a potential driver for uh, continued market gains in 2024. I want to also talk about this being an election year. In your latest piece, you talk about there's only been one year with a negative return uh, in a presidential election year, and that was 1948. So we haven't seen a negative fourth year cycle for the market in a presidential election in a long, long time. You got to go back 76 years there with an incumbent candidate. When you have uh, uh, someone looking to get reelected, looking specifically at first-term presidencies, and it's another support for the equity market. Uh, Election years during a first-term presidency have been positive 80% of the time through this period. A monthly breakdown of returns in these years show that market performance is typically weakest between March and May and strongest between June and August. So as a loose roadmap uh, only, you know, we are looking to buy early year weakness in anticipation for a summertime rally. Of course, the market has moderated and uh, been rather lackluster to start the year, you know, from the, those overbought conditions generated during that fourth quarter rally. You know, our view is that while tactical signals that may not indicate uh, conditions are attractive for purchase, they don't argue for selling either. That instead, we think this early year consolidation is allowing those fourth quarter X's to recede ahead of a resumption of the bull cycle and a breakout to new highs. So given the fact that you think the market's heading to 5,400, one of the things we saw in the Santa Claus rally is the market's participation began to broaden. There were a lot of sectors that were going up during that period of time. Since then, they pulled back. It's very strong in tech right now. Do you see that broadening again as we move forward? If we didn't see it broader than what we've seen so far, it would be a rarity for the market not to have this broad-based breakaway uh, in a bull market cycle, because that is what we're still missing. Kind of thinking in terms of internal breadth, We've argued that the conditions are stronger than a bear market rally. You know, based on the breadth readings, very easy to argue that we're you know out of the bear cycle that that we were in 22. But we uh, still haven't seen the the, com- the true confirmation of a the much anticipated broad based breakaway. There's one particular metric that we like to look at. It's based on the percentage of NYSE stocks trading above their 200 day average. It got as high as 69 percent during that fourth quarter rally. Uh, ideally, you'd like to, we'd like to see a definitive reading above 70% to confirm that breakaway. I think to get that, you need the small cap Russell 2000 to break above its own 18-month range. You know That has continued to be capped around that 2,000, 2,100 level. I think if you get a breakout there, 
you're going to see continued broadening. Conversely, the time to get concerned is when you're when the market and the S&P 500 is printing new highs, but that 200-day participation indicator fails to get above 60%. But that's your typical warning of a market top. So that isn't a risk right now. The fact that we did get above 60% does argue against the market top scenario. And do you see any other sectors standing out besides, so let's say, the tech sector? Anything that looks attractive outside of tech to you? So against that core position in technology and, and large cap growth more broadly, uh, we do want to have be, have exposure to these swings in beta, meaning select exposure to cyclical value is warranted here. I'd argue that our top rotation idea is mid-cap growth because uh, we believe it strikes an attractive balance between secular growth leadership and that rotation potential in lower capitalized stocks. Thinking in terms of sectors, our, our top ideas are technology, financials, and industrials. So again, we are capturing that mix of both growth and value, but more so wanting to be exposed to sectors that typically outperform in a rising market environment. We're also positive uh, on pockets of consumer discretionary and, and communication services as well. And then conversely, uh, we recommend underweight positions and we're you know, relatively cautious on safety sectors like utilities and consumer staples. These are typically counter-cyclical, they're low volatility. They, can, they might participate in a bull market, but at a lesser pace and underperform against a stronger market. Well, let's move to another market. You have three and a quarter percent as key support for the 10-year treasury. On the day you and I are speaking, the 10-year treasury is at 4.13. Do you see rates dropping to that level? Over time, we do. I think the 10-year U.S. treasury yield has likely peaked for the cycle at around 5%, which was last year's high. I think ultimately, it would be reasonable for us to see the 10-year revisit last year's low point at around three and a quarter percent. And for now, we're expecting the 10-year to continue to oscillate around its 200-day average, which is at 4%. So we remind investors it's not high or low rates, but stable rates that have historically been a tailwind for equity market performance. And that's what we're seeing develop here against this not-too-hot not too cold economic backdrop. All right, let's move on to the dollar. You've got that key supported 100. It's roughly about 103. It got as high as 107 and got down as, as low as 101. So you think uh, 100's the support and as low as the dollar goes? We do. And, and the dollar was towards the lower end of this range to start the year. We think uh, you generally want to play the dollar in that range. And we thought it was tactically attractive at the lower end of that range. Uh, and that has put some near-term pressure on commodity prices. Uh, we've been very conscious to say that we don't think the dollar is weak enough to support a super cycle in commodity prices. But I think against a range-bound dollar, you know, you could get uh, select, you know, range bound action in, in commodity prices where some commodities acting uh, better than others. You know, for instance, the price of gold, we think this could be the year where the yellow metal finally breaks out from its multi-year range, which has limited the uh, commodity at around $2,100. A uh, uh, breakout from 2100 would target a move towards 2500 uh, we would note that the commodity looks stronger than the equity, the miners, the gold miners. 
Uh, so we would want to play that through the commodity. Conversely, on the equity side, uh, in terms of commodities, do prefer some of the more industrial metals. Though here too, the key is selection. Some should do better than others. All right, let's move on to oil, uh, which you've got midpoint for WTI this year, about 80. We're currently around 73. So do you see an upward movement in oil towards the end of the year? We do. I think here too, it's it's another uh, asset that probably want to buy it when it looks ugly, sell it when it looks good, that we're expecting more range-bound behavior. That as much as we are, we're not expecting uh, a significant run-up, uh, a super cycle in oil prices, we think there is a floor out there. And we think uh, pricing of West Texas Intermediate currently finding the lower end of that range. So uh, as it stands, uh, building a base that are above $70. And uh, I think uh, over the coming weeks to months, we will get a trade above the 200-day average and above that $80 midpoint uh, and work its way into the 80s, which could mark the upper end of that range. What's your view on Bitcoin? I always start my discussions on Bitcoin that it's in, it's important for investors to understand the volatility in this cryptocurrency, that in order to capture the outsized long-term returns that this is going to double or triple from here, one has to really be able to withstand a lot of volatility in, in the interim term that, you know, support levels for crypto could potentially be 20, 30, 40% below. Uh, and, and, and both could be right. Uh, you know, you could have these 50% drops and, and still be in this longer term uptrend for the crypto. As it stands, it's, it was a, a very strong back half of 2023 uh, and we've made note that there was a reversal day at 48,000, which was a resistance level going back to March of 2022 on the same day that the, the Bitcoin ETFs launched. And to us, that might have, that was a contrarian sell signal. It was a kind of buy the speculation. There was a run up into the ETF launch and sell the news event that on the launch of the ETFs. Uh, Bitcoin sold off. It pushed above the 48,000 temporarily, then reversed lower. It was a key reversal day. It was accompanied by a bearish divergence in its RSI, which is to say Bitcoin made a higher high, but its momentum indicators made a lower high. That's indicative of a deceleration in the speed of price, which typically also is accompanied by a reversal in price. So it appears Bitcoin has found a near-term top with additional near-term risk to it as it trades. But uh, all that is occurring above a rising 200-day average, which is to say that the long-term uptrend is still intact. So if you're going to be in Bitcoin, keep lots of Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> That's a <laughs> great, great way to put it. <laughs> okay. Um, so given where you think the market's going to be, 5,400 your target, what would you be doing now, we're recommending our clients to increase exposure to risk, that there is some concern lurking out there. For instance, one study that gives us a lot of worry is based on performance when the yield curve is inverted and the Fed cuts its interest rate. The market has actually posted negative return, 12-month returns when that is the case. So while some may be looking for a Fed cut in 2024, that could be another buy the speculation, sell the news event, depending 
on what is the catalyst for them to cut, whether it be uh, some more uh, notable signs of a deterioration in economic activity. We don't think we're there based on our historical work. You know, market top risk is pushed out to at least the fourth quarter, potentially even into the post-election year in, in 2025. And I think in that intervening period, there's still money to be made in this equity cycle. We're anticipating a 13% gain, which again is based on the typical performance in year two of a bull, bull market. And we think investors should be positioned for that. I think it's about building a core position in the NASDAQ 100, where we're still seeing long-term secular strength. We think we're in a secular bull market to be led higher by large cap growth. And for new money ideas, we'd be looking at an area like mid-cap growth, which again, strikes that balance between long-term leadership and near-term rotation potential, even looking at the equal-weighted version of the NASDAQ 100, which again, I think speaks to the broadness of strength across both capitalizations and industries within the technology sector. And a final question, if I may, what's Oppenheimer's view on Fed rate cuts? You know, uh, Wall Street was anticipating one as soon as March. That looks like that may be off the table, partially. Where do you think they go and when? Not being an economist, I don't have an, an official view on uh, when the Fed cuts its uh, policy rate based on our work and kind of our view that the, the initial catalyst for them hiking rate rates was to avoid a 1970s type roadmap that would see a resurgence in inflation when they arguably cut rates too quickly and hastily. I don't believe that they're in a rush to do so. I think they would likely only be doing so if there was a, a reason to do that, which would be that a deterioration in economic activity, which would be the bearish catalyst of a, a more imminent market top. So I think as it stands, just given the strength that we're, we're seeing in the market. And again, it's in this low growth, but not no growth economic backdrop. I think they stand put. And I think that against that, equity markets continue to push higher. All right. Well, listen, Ari, as we close, how can our listeners follow the work you guys do at Oppenheimer? Well, they can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Ari Wald. All right. Well, Ari, happy new year to you and hope to talk to you once again. Oh, happy new year to you as well, Jim. We will talk soon. Take care. Hi, I'm Jim Poplava. I started Financial Sense in 1985 to give clients a boutique personal investment experience that's hard to get at a large company. For three decades, my company has been helping families build, manage, and protect their wealth through tailored financial planning and investment management. If you are looking to make financial sense of a complex world, give our office a call at 888-486-3939 to speak with one of our advisors today and let us help you plan your future. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, we've seen real estate hold up better than expected, despite some of the biggest increases in mortgage rates in several decades. What does this mean for real estate going forward? Will it be affordable? Well, let's find out. Joining us on the program is Selma Hepp. She's chief economist at CoreLogic. Selma, it's the old joke, the definition of a millionaire in California is a homeowner. <laughs> I'm seeing prices I thought I would never, ever see in California. Let's talk about that. Why, in your opinion, 
has this increase in mortgage rates where we've gone from three all the way up to seven. I think we're about six and a half now. Why hasn't that not impacted the real estate market as much as it should? So one big reason, one main reason, I think, is that we have shortage of housing. <laughs> and, you know, the case in California, that case is even more pronounced. So when I look at availability of inventory of homes for sale, whether that be existing home sales or new home, or new homes, it's, it's a completely different story, but it's even more uh, drastic. But availability of existing home for sale has been uh, lowest uh, on a relative basis in California, more so than anywhere else in the country. So the declines as a result of of higher mortgage rates and people having been locked in super low mortgage rates and the fact that home prices have cumulatively increased over 40% since the onset of the pandemic. And then, you know, other things that are specific to California being taxes and Prop 13 really disincentivize people from leaving. So I think that's what's, you know, held up inventory so low. Uh, while at the same time, we have had, you know, pretty decent uh, real wage growth in the state. And we've also had quite a bit of migration from uh, some parts of the state that have relatively higher incomes to areas that are relatively more affordable. And, you know, when you combine lack of inventory with some stronger wage pressures, you, you get that impact on home prices that we saw over the last year. Well, I know that a lot of people do not want to trade out of their house. I mean, if you locked in at a 3% mortgage, why would you want to buy a new new one and pay maybe six and a half? Mm -hmm. So that's one issue. The other issue is also the capital gains associated. Uh, they used to be able to roll over your house to another house if it was equal value and you would just roll over your cost basis. But they changed that in 94 and you get a quarter million exemption on capital gains if you're single, half a million if you're married. So how much are these two factors, both low mortgage rates locked in, plus the capital gains on the sale of home? How much of a factor is that on reducing inventory? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, anecdotally, I hear that very frequently. Um, and I hear people not wanting to leave their home or sell their home because of that. Now, in terms of the numbers, you know, it does make sense that one wouldn't want to leave. Uh, you know, in California, we have other than than Hawaii, California has highest uh, accumulated average equity per borrower. Um, that's for borrowers that still have a mortgage on their home. If they don't have a mortgage, obviously they they you know own you know free and clear. And if a home is worth two million, that's that's the entirety of their equity. But for borrowers that do have a mortgage on their home, equity it exceeds a million dollars in many parts of of California. In the Bay Area, more so uh, than in Southern California, but even in LA and San Diego, for example, on average, people have about $730,000 in equity. And that's borrowers, again, with a mortgage, meaning that they potentially are younger borrowers because they own for less than you know 30 years. Um, you know, when we were talking about older baby boomers that have been in California for a long time or maybe even born here. Um, you know, they, they they have a lot of a lot on the line in terms of uh, potential, you know, losses. Well, I guess, you know, one could call it losses uh, on capital gains. Right. Selma, is this just strictly your average home? Uh, how is the luxury home market doing? Like 
you're in the LA area. So you have Brentwood, you have Pacific Heights, you have, you know, some of the wealthier neighborhoods. How are those homes holding up in this kind of market? Well, you know, we've seen at the onset of the pandemic and, you know, in first couple of years of the pandemic, uh, high-end market doing really, really well. It did really, really well until middle of 2022, when not just because of higher mortgage rates, because, you know, a lot of times those folks are actually buying with cash, but but other things, you know, being uncertainty around the equity markets, uncertainty around recession, economic activity, and a number of other things, we have seen that market uh uh, show a relatively larger slowdown in activity than your, you know, bread and butter mid mid of the market priced homes. So they have been hit a little bit harder. Um, but then again, we are comparing really really strong numbers. 2021, 2020, 2020, 2021, 2022 to something, uh, you know, slower now. So, so, so it's also on a relative basis, but, you know, longer term, when you look at where luxury homes are compared to pre-pandemic, they still tend to trend uh, stronger than where we were pre-pandemic. So there's still, uh, to some extent, in influx of high-end buyers into these markets. We've seen a lot of exodus of taxpayers mm -hmm. out of California. They've gone to Florida, Texas, Arizona, Nevada. Mm -hmm. How are those states holding up in terms of real estate? Are they still cheaper in a value for somebody that lives in an expensive area, like let's say New York going to Florida or somebody in California going to Phoenix or let's say Vegas? Yes. So first, yeah, we've seen definitely an out-migration, and especially from California, and, you know, always sort of hits the headlines, you know, California being the, the state with largest exodus, though, you know, other areas are seeing uh, uh, people leaving as, as well. Um, so a couple of things here, you know, one, what's interesting about California more recently is that ever, ever since we had the SALT deduction uh, cap, um, we are seeing a more higher income residents leaving than prior. Uh, prior to that, we generally tended to see more uh, middle income and lower income residents who couldn't simply, who, who left due to affordability. Now, what we are seeing is more people leaving for tax reasons as well. Now, for people, for states that are um, receiving these folks, um, we've certainly seen pressures on their home prices in those states. So, um, you know, at the onset of the pandemic, everybody talked about Boise City or uh, Boise City or generally Idaho, uh, Wyoming, um, Utah as being states with a lot of Californians coming in. And that put pressure on home prices in those markets and really you know, really uh, led to a huge uh, affordability crisis as a result now in those markets. And now, you know, when you look at states and uh, metros that are lagging in terms of price growth, are the markets that received a lot of that immigration early on in the pandemic from high cost uh, and high income residents from California. But, you know, still, nevertheless, outside those, we do continue to see out migration to Arizona to Nevada, 
uh, to these adjacent states, and 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 we do continue also to see pressure on home prices in those markets. Not the same as as sort of you know the surge in Boise City and, and Austin, for example, was really fast and really rapid. Where in you know uh, Phoenix, for example, in Nevada, it's more slow but steady. <laughs> you know, and and so when. When mortgage rates um, started making an impact on on home prices across the country um, in the middle of 2022, it did have an impact on home prices in Phoenix and in Las Vegas. But those markets actually uh, had a pretty strong rebound in 2023 because they continued to see a migration from from these more expensive areas. Are there any areas in the country that stand out to you as great value, you know, places that normally people aren't thinking of, like Arizona, Nevada, Texas, and Florida? Well, I think, um, well, those have already been discovered, right? <laughs> Arizona, yeah, yeah right. Um, I think the places that are now sort of on, on a radar for people for seeking affordability are areas, areas in Midwest, uh, Midwest, and then parts of Southeast that maybe haven't been as popular uh, before. You know, we knew we knew about Florida's, we knew about Carolina's, Georgia to some extent, but now you have Kentucky and Tennessee and Alabama um, being being areas that you know, are in demand, uh, particularly, you know, affordability, because you have people buying for affordability reasons, and you have lifestyle reasons. So you have different reasons, right? Um, but but certain in terms of affordability, those remained um, sort of, um, like you said, um, value areas. Um, and, and that's also, those are also areas that, that we potentially will see a little bit more home price appreciation over the next year as a result of uh, this increased demand. Do you see any hope for, I guess, younger buyers? Because I look at, you know, the cost here, there's not much inventory. And then also when you're talking about raw materials of building a new house, I, I don't see lumber prices dropping in half or the price of copper or all the raw materials that go in. And hasn't there been some supply chain issues? Well, absolutely. So, you know, so in terms of new construction uh, that, you know, they've had, quite a bit of challenges along the way during the pandemic, not just in terms of materials, but in labor as well. You know, if you think about, you know, uh, during the pandemic, we didn't have as many immigrants coming in, and that's really the source of labor force for for construction. Um, and so, so they've had many, many challenges. And when you look at the cost of construction for goods, um, that um, those costs have gone up cumulatively since late 2019, um, about 40 percent. Um, so that's for goods. Same for trade services, but basically for trades, uh, cost of labor and and services that c- come along. So you know when you think about how much you know that 40 percent increase, it it, it just it reflects how difficult it is to. Put new homes up that are affordable. Now, what builders have been able to do, or 
um, you know, especially when home prices, when mortgage rates went up, is that they started building more uh, smaller homes. Uh, the, the size of home has actually declined over the last year because they're trying to meet that uh, demand of uh first-time home buyers and and people looking for small homes. So that's how they have been able to offset some of that cost. But still, you know, similar to increase in existing home prices, we've seen increase in new home prices um, almost at the same rate. So, you know, so going back to your first part of your questions about difficulties, you know, I, I think it is a very difficult um, for first-time home buyers to to enter the market right now, especially again in markets that are, don't have new construction or don't, just don't have inventory overall, like California is. But you, um, the, you know, the other thing that you have to remember about these younger buyers is that a lot of them lived in their parents' home for longer than the previous generations, and as a result, have been able to save. Baby boomers are also the richest generation that we've ever had. So hopefully if you have parents that can lend you some down payment monies, you have an advantage there too. Um, so, you know, we have seen first time home buyers, you know, make their way into the market. Um, unfortunately, the truth is that, you know, a lot of them cannot. So given the shortage of housing in many areas, whether it's New York or it's here on the West Coast, do you see the government doing anything to make it more affordable other than just passing all kinds of regulations uh, that restrict building? Well, I will tell you, it's it's a complicated, complicated um, uh, web of issues that we have in markets like particularly in California, uh, when it comes to building affordable housing or building housing in general. You know, one is the fact that, you know, we've been long, you know, long term, we've been downsizing, down zoning uh, in our metro areas for a long time. You know, this goes back to 1970s, 1980s. Um, so, you know, we've downzoned our metro areas. We've also uh, added a lot of restrictions on building new housing, you know, before even one breaks the ground or even buys the land, you know. And, and so I think in many ways, who is the biggest um, culprit here are actually existing homeowners, <laughs> uh, the NIMBYists, you know, the people that don't want new construction, because in many ways they use regulations put in place, such as CEQA, uh, to prevent housing or to stall uh, it to the point where, you know, builders just tend to give up or go elsewhere to build. So, you know, I, I think I think the state at this point is trying really, really hard. And there's been numerous incentives put out uh, to encourage new construction or, you know, one could call it legislation. But but I really think that they're trying to um, trying to incentivize, you know, and, 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 and communities over and over just decide that they, they're, they not to accept those housing, um, allocations. So, you know, I will say it's a really complicated issue. <laughs> Very complicated. Okay. Well, let's, uh, end on, uh, two, two kind of questions, if I may. Let's take a millennial. Mm -hmm. What would you advise them to do? Let's say they're starting a family. They would like to own a home. Uh, the advice to them. And then also, let's take somebody that lives in an expensive area like New York or 
California. They're getting ready for retirement. They got a huge amount of equity. Uh, what would you advise them to do and where should they go if they want to go to some place where it's more affordable? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I was, you know, I myself bought a home and it took me many years to actually find something that I could afford. Um, but, you know, I, I remained persistent and, you know, I, what, what I sort of, the way I went about it is I would look during the periods of housing times or housing cycles when there was fear that the housing market was on a decline or that, you know, there was some sort of reservation about the housing market, because then at that point, you don't have as much competition. The truth of the matter is because we do have such constrained inventory is that no matter what, when you enter spring home buying season, you'll have more buyers coming in and, and the market becomes more competitive. And so it's very difficult to buy. You know, if you buy at off times, you're buying in the winter, you're buying uh, late summer, for example, um, you're more likely to have fewer people competing against you. So, you're, you you know, you, you may be able to get that home that, you know, that, that you're looking for. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, naturally we... You know, we all want to live in a certain place, but we may not be able to afford in that place. So, you know, expanding your search criteria, you know, may be something that may be helpful. The other thing is, you know, um, while it may be easier to buy a home that's been renovated, um, you know, buying a home that needs work also then has you know, fewer bidders and, and, and it's maybe more cost effective. Um, so that's another way of, of, you know, entering home ownership. And those are all three ways that, that I used <laughs> to buy, to buy a home. I, I bought a fixer upper, you know, in, in 2018, when the market was in, in, in February, when nobody was out there looking for homes. And, and so I was able to find something in the market and home sat on the market for a long time. So that's another thing, maybe, you know, looking at homes that have been sitting for a while and they're sitting for a while because they, you know, they're missing something, you know, and so you have to be willing to overlook that as well. Now, in terms of the, the folks that, you know, want to, you know, re they're retiring, they have a lot of equity. Um, you know, I, 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 so I'm not a tax expert, but, you know, I imagine there could be some ways of working through some of the tax concerns. Um, you know, one obvious one is, you know, I know that if you have made improvements on your home, um, that's, you know, tax deductible and you can take that off of that um, equity gain. So. Um, you know, and, and and many people have made improvements over time, so they may just not have taken that into consideration. So the the conclusion I'm drawing here, the housing market is still going to remain fairly strong despite uh, you know, mortgage rates. Is just simply uh, supply. There's just not enough homes out there. Would that yeah, be? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's you know, that's my take on it. That's my take. That's you know, I I think you know, and this this period in time that we've been through over the last year and a half was a really good example of that uh, because, you know, we all expected home prices to decline much more and, and, and remain there uh, because in many ways, 
home prices exceeded income gains. And, and so many people were expecting that to revert back, home prices to revert back to the rate of uh, uh, wage gains. And, and and we didn't see that. And, and I think the reason being is that uh, we are undersupplied on one hand, but on the demand side, you know, a lot of people have actually fared relatively well during the pandemic. And, you know, if you look at household wealth data from the Federal Reserve, uh, we've seen quite a bit of, uh, you know, income gains in during the pandemic. So, so there are people out there who can afford um, and that's those are the people who are putting pressure on home prices. So it's the combination of the two, I think, to the, that led to the uh, strong, relatively strong in terms, at least in terms of home price appreciation. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Uh, you know, we are, you know, there's been some concern or some narrative around you know, we call it silver tsunami, which is, you know, a lot of baby boomers, you know, retiring, leaving their homes and, and moving elsewhere. And so, so huge, you know, gains in, in inventories in some markets, but we have not seen that at all. And, and as a matter of fact, as we discussed, you know, there are many tax reasons that are keeping people in place. There are also costs, you know, if you have paid off your home, or if you refied, you know, you're sitting in really, really affordable mortgage payment in, you know, and everything else is so much more expensive. And on top of that, there's not much to buy, you know, what is your incentive to move? So, so I don't see that narrative playing out anytime soon either. All right. Well, listen, Selma, if our listeners would like to follow the work, you guys cover the whole real estate market. How could they find out more about CoreLogic? Yeah. So we have our web site corelogic.com um in on that website there is an intelligence page uh which is basically all our analysis and insights um and we do so much more than housing we do insurance we do climate impacts we do uh mortgage mortgage specific uh insights so so we do a lot and i encourage folks to come visit us at corelogic.com all right well listen selva all the best and thanks for joining us on the program Thank you so much for having me. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939, or you can visit us on our website, financialsensewealth.com. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content, where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and market strategists, go to the Financial Sense website and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of the Financial Sense News Hour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.